Hey, how's it going? Great, glad to hear it. My name's Jeremy Ullman. I'm the host of this podcast, Abstract, colon, The Future of Science. So what's this all about? There are thousands upon thousands of graduate students all across the world, and I'm trying to tap into their knowledge they have gained in their research over the last one to seven years. We recorded this in the past, you're listening to it in the present, and you're learning about the future. So, what better time than now to enjoy a quick episode of Abstract. Hope you enjoy. Hey, welcome to Abstract. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So... Where does pain originate in the body, and how is it perceived? What can facial expressions tell us about individual experience? Why can't I read braille with my chest, or my back, or the bottoms of my feet for that matter? Hmm. Where can I find saliva in the animal kingdom? What's the difference between venoms, poisons, and stings? Answers to these questions, and I can assure you many, 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 many more on today's episode of Abstract. So let's go. Stephanie Mushbahani Constance is a third-year PhD student at McGill University in the Department of Physiology. She was born and raised in Montreal and received her Bachelor of Science from McGill in 2018, where she majored in physiology. In the summer before her last year of undergrad, Stephanie carried out a research project under Dr. Reza Sharif Naini's supervision, where she began working on the project that would ultimately become the focus of her PhD. She was studying the venom responsible for excruciatingly painful stings produced by lionfish, with a focus on understanding how this venom causes so much pain on a molecular level. She's the recipient of the Vanier Scholarship from the Canadian Institute for Health Research and is one of three Canadians invited to attend the 2020 Lindau Nobel Laureate Conference. Much of her research has been published, and some has even been patented to give rise to a startup that she and her PhD supervisor co-founded called Terotech with a capital P. They've since taken their product called Sting Master from the lab to the market in one year. It's the first ever over-the-counter topical ointment that treats the pain caused by lionfish and jellyfish stings. Outside of science, Stephanie's a big fan of hiking, trashy reality TV. I think The Bachelor just started yesterday. I'm sure you know. <laughs> oh, I know. Uh, <laughs> cooking and IPAs and reading. So without further ado, let's welcome Stephanie to the podcast. Stephanie, how's it going? I'm going great. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for being here. This is exceptionally exciting. So this is a jam-packed introduction that I'm looking forward to getting into. Super exciting as well. We've had a couple of graduate student business owners who've been on the podcast so far. So you are, you are one of few, which is really exciting. So I definitely want to uh, talk a bit about your, your ventures as an entrepreneur uh, in the second half of today's episode for sure. Sounds good. It says here that you did your undergrad at McGill and also your PhD at McGill. Was there any point where you thought you might want to study elsewhere or did you just fall in love with McGill from day one and that was the end of it? So it was not a love affair at the beginning with me with McGill. It was a, honestly kind of a surprise. So when I started undergrad at McGill in physiology, like many physiology undergrads, I was certain that I was going to go to med school after undergrad, that I was certain that medicine was all I wanted to do. I had absolutely no interest in doing research. I thought the idea of a PhD was just awful. I didn't really understand what it was to be a scientist. Like I didn't really know people did 
research and labs. And I especially didn't know that you could do that as a PhD student or as an undergrad. So it was not on my radar whatsoever. Actually, like one of the things that helps you get into med school is having research experience. So when I was an undergrad, I was like, I might as well sign up to do a research project in the summer in a lab. And I joined the Sharif lab that I'm in now. And I was given this project. It was completely random, but it kind of worked out well. Um, The project was working on lionfish venom. And the idea was just to see what happens, like what kind of pain is caused by lionfish venom, because no one had studied this venom before, really, like from a behavior point of view. And the Sharif lab is completely focused on studying pain and sort of like the cellular and molecular um, components that are responsible for sensing pain uh, in the peripheral nervous system, not in the brain. So I was kind of the most uh, an interesting person to work on this project because I actually knew what lionfish were, which a lot of people didn't when I guess they were proposed this project. What was the experience that you had had with lionfish? It's very random. Like when I was younger, um, I used to go to the Bahamas a lot and go snorkeling. And I sort of witnessed the invasion of lionfish there because lionfish are a super invasive species. And they invaded the Caribbean in like the late 90s, early 2000s. And they sort of just like wreak havoc. They just eat all fish that are smaller than them and just destroy reef populations. So they're really hated in that area. How big is a lionfish, by the way? Like if, if I'm looking at the palm of my hand, w- w- would all of its fins fill the palm of my hand out to my fingertips or just the palm? Or like, are they the size of a finger? Like how big are these things? So a juvenile lionfish, the body is like this big and the spine. So it would be like the size of It's a podcast, by the way, palm. so we can't see. Oh, yeah, true. <laughs> like, oh, it's this big. It would be like, they can be as small as three inches big and okay. like with the fins the size of your hand, but typically the ones that are problematic the body is like as long as your hand can be tall yeah. and they can be up to like a foot and a half, just the body alone with like the, the spines going like six inches plus. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. They can get huge. And like the bigger it is, the more venom. <laughs> yeah. So as an undergraduate, I was in a cognitive science program. And so I had the opportunity to get bonus credit doing various volunteer opportunities in labs, right? As, as participants. And so I remember taking part in this pain study where they had had me go through different hot and cold situations where I'd dunk my arm in an ice bath and then they have a little metal block that they'd heat up and put on my forearm. Mm-hmm. Are you injecting venom into undergraduates or <laughs> how do you measure <laughs> no. the pain response? Uh, so we use mice in our lab that uh, okay. as our sting victims, I guess. Mm-hmm. All the experiments that you went through, like feeling cold, feeling warm, feeling pressure, we can do all these things with mice. So um, we have special machines, like there's something called a Hargraves device, which you have a mouse on a glass platform and it shines a concentrated light at its paw. And over time, the light sort of gets hotter and hotter for the mouse's paw and then it retracts its paw when it feels pain. So mm. we are able to do experiments where basically we inject the paw of a, of a mouse. Like we don't inject it in the bloodstream or anything like that, but just under the skin in the paw and we film the mouse for an hour and we quantify how much pain it's in based on how much time it spends licking the paw that we injected so Mm -hmm. it's that's that's what the undergrads are there for it's basically like watching the video and recording when the mouse is licking that's what i did a lot in undergrad so i guess what you're missing out is the i guess with humans you can ask you can always ask and i was asked this you know i'm gonna i'm gonna put this very hot element on your forearm and you're gonna rate the pain 
if you could just look at my face, I guess that would be some characteristic, how much I was wincing. That would indicate how much pain I was experiencing. Is that essentially what you're looking for in the rats? You're just looking for the behavioral change because you can't really ask them questions. So funny you bring up your facial expressions. There's actually a scale that was invented at McGill by Jeff Mogul, the Grimace scale. I, I don't remember if it came first for humans or for mice or rats, or I think it also exists or it's being developed for cats too, where you look at sort of the whisker position, the way that the nose is placed, uh, and you can tell sort of from like a one to 10, one to five, honestly, I don't do these experiments myself, so I don't know exactly what the grading system is, but it's based on what the facial features are. It can indicate how much pain the animal's in. But the difference between humans and mice in terms of pain is that, of course, pain is a very sort of subjective experience, but behavior doesn't really lie. Like when you have an animal that just retracts its paw calmly, its face hasn't changed. Typically, that's like a reflex, like it just felt pressure. But there are certain cues that you can tell where an animal is clearly in pain. Like um, there's something called flipping behavior where it picks up its paw and then it sort of shakes it like it's in pain. Mm -hmm. Or it starts to lick its paw or bite its paw where it's attending to an injury because it wouldn't be licking if it didn't think it was injured. So I guess with humans, you would be wincing, let's say, if you were injured. But maybe a guy who doesn't want people to know he's in pain wouldn't be wincing. So there's the sort of added Mm -hmm. layer of consciously knowing like how you're depicting your pain whereas with mice that doesn't happen like a socialization of pain kind of yeah and i mean talking to people who've been stung by lionfish because lots of people get stung by lionfish and it's super painful i've heard every story from i'm immune to their stings i don't feel pain from lionfish from like these big guys in florida who like Mm -hmm. go and hunt lionfish to people who say like the pain gets worse and worse it was worse than when i broke two ribs like the the pain ranges, but you know the venom is the same. So it it could be that people's experiences of pain are different. Sometimes people you know get infections and there's inflammation. It varies, but at least with mice, it's pretty consistent. <laughs> yeah, pain is so so fascinating for one because, like you're saying, there's almost a, like these certain reflexes that we have, right, where we will like withdraw our hand from like a hot stimulus, for example. Or when there's pre- or will wince, and you can actually measure the facial expressions in humans and also mice. But we also have this uh, these these other weird abilities to kind of control how much things hurt. I, I don't I don't know if I heard of this in like a more scientific context than MythBusters, but I remember there that there was some kind of study that they were doing where if you swore while you were experiencing something painful, it actually lessened your experience of that pain. Have you heard of this kind of thing? I mean. Something that people say and that is that you have to be very careful of when you're working with mice is that distraction is the strongest analgesic. So it's like the strongest pain reliever. So like if you're working with mice, you have to make sure that there is no sound around you. You're not wearing perfume. You're not chewing gum. Like because all these things will distract the animal and change the way it responds to whatever painful stimulus you're giving. So I think it's completely true. I mean, I'm a fan of Mythbusters, so I wouldn't bash them publicly. But, for sure uh, not, for sure not. Yeah, I'm just bringing it up as, as a fun anecdote. Yeah, but I think it's definitely true. I mean, even for myself, when I hurt myself, like if I, I have this weird habit where if something kind of hurts, I'll like dig a fingernail into my palm, just to like distract and focus on that sure. pain instead. And it helps me. I think it's I think it's more a higher level thing. So we, like I study pain in the peripheral nervous system. I don't even enter, like I don't really study what's going on in the spinal cord even, just in peripheral sensory neurons. Mm -hmm. So I think the distraction being an analgesic is sort of a brain thing that's happening where maybe you're, 
focusing on something else. So the pain is less important for you and your representation of what's going on. But I think it's definitely a thing. So could we actually dive a little bit deeper into the kinds of nervous systems that we're talking about here? You, you've dropped the term peripheral, which I'm, mm-hmm. I'm familiar with due to my neuroscience and psychology background. But of course, to keep this extremely accessible for those listeners who don't really know much about how our nervous system is divided. Could you give us a little uh, primer on that? Absolutely. So the nervous system is divided into the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. The central nervous system involves everything that is in the brain and the spinal cord. And then the peripheral nervous system is everything outside of those. So nerves, ganglia. So ganglia are basically just balls of cell bodies of neurons. So the ganglia that I'm most interested in are called dorsal root ganglia. And basically they're the cell bodies. So, I mean, a neuron is made up of a cell body and axon and dendrites, Uh, but peripheral neurons tend to be a little bit special. They don't really have defined axons and dendrites, which are sort of the input output compartments of a neuron. They are what's called pseudo unipolar, which basically just means they are a highway for information and they don't really process information. They just carry it. Mm. And the dorsal root ganglia or DRGs, basically all the peripheral neurons for a specific body area are bundled together and they send out all these extensions or these neurites that form your nerves. So if you've heard of like the main nerves in your body, like the sciatic nerve, Mm -hmm. they're like cell bodies are actually in things called dorsal root ganglia. And um, the peripheral neurons that I work on are are these cells. And basically they innervate all your limbs. So like your skin, your muscle, and there are different cell types inside of them. There are cell types that are responsible for sensing like where your muscle is putting your particular limb in space. There are some cells that are responsible for sensing pain. So those are called nociceptors because nociception is like the sensation of pain. There are some cells that are only responsible for sensing touch and like very light mechanical stimuli. So like the indentation of your skin in a light way, some that are high thresholds receptors, which are a kind of nociceptor and they sense like major indentations in your skin. Some cells are more specialized for sensing heat and cold. It's kind of like this crazy jumble of cell types in these little tiny balls right outside of your spinal cord. And there are a bunch of them like in humans don't quote me how many because I never do this on humans but in humans there are like six or seven maybe on either side of the spinal cord in mice there are six on either side of the spinal cord and um, basically that's where all the cells that will sense touch for your entire life live and those are the cells I'm most interested in so you have these kind of like way stations which you said are these pseudo unipolar neurons Mm -hmm. right information kind of just passes by them and doesn't get processed yeah these are in the dorsal root ganglia Mm-hmm. Close to the midline of the body. Yeah. Right. And so you're saying we have bundles of these cells that have these long projections towards our limbs? Because mm-hmm. I've always had this similar picture in my mind of the circulatory system and the nervous system, where, for example, at the level of the heart, you've got the aorta, which is this huge artery coming out. And then that branches out, becomes smaller. It becomes the arterioles and the capillaries. And when it hits your fingertips, I mean, you've got lots and lots of tiny, tiny little arteries. Mm-hmm. Is that how the nervous system works out? Does it does it branch or is it really more like you have one main bundle? What's the difference? I think that's what I think is the craziest about the nervous system is that it doesn't really branch outside of the DRGs themselves. Like 
those cells that have extensions that come out, that extension stays like one. And then maybe at the layer of the skin, it can branch a little bit to receive information, but it's still pretty restricted in like what we call the receptive field. So the actual space on the skin or muscle that is innervated by that cell. And it can branch a little bit, but it doesn't really branch like high up. When I say high up, I mean like near the cell body. It branches very, very much at the periphery. And it just sort of stays one extension up until it gets to its target tissue that it's innervating. So it's it's really cool. I mean, I hadn't known that before I started doing research, really. Like, I didn't really learn about that in class, and I think that's, like, the coolest part of the nervous system. That is kind of mind-blowing and almost counterintuitive because I know, for example, if I press on any part of my body, I'm going to feel it. It isn't like a blind spot where I know there's actually a part of my visual field that I technically am not really sensing, but my brain fills in the rest. Is, is there a part of my body where when, when I touch it, I'm actually not feeling anything? My brain's just convincing me that I am? Like, how can we not have this branching if every square inch of my body has this sensation? Well, there's an experiment that I did in elementary school. It's kind of weird. It's like you take a piece of styrofoam and you mm-hmm. put two toothpicks in it about like two centimeters apart so that the toothpicks are sort of flush with each other, like mm-hmm. at their tips. And you just poke different parts of your body and you see, like, let's say you poke your fingertip with this, you can definitely tell that there are two toothpicks that are poking you at once. But mm-hmm. if you poke the middle of your back, it feels like one stimulus. Like, okay. and, and there's certain parts of your body that aren't as like intricately covered, let's say, by your sure. nervous system for touch. Sure. So. There's certainly branching to a degree, like in your fingertip, of course, there's some branching at the very end of the extension coming from the DRG neuron, but that DRG neuron is still only innervating, let's say like five millimeters by five millimeters, maybe like one centimeter by one centimeter on your skin, like a tiny little area. And it's transmitting information about touch. Depending on the cell type, it can be sensing pain, heat, location in space. There's so many different sort of modalities of the physical world that are getting transmitted by these cells and it's carrying the information super far so like a neuron that innervates your foot for example has a far larger extension than a neuron that's innervating like your shoulder muscle because that's a lot closer to your spinal cord or the Mm. area where your drgs are so it's a it's a very i agree it's pretty trippy that these things are transmitted so fast What's also cool is that the different cell types have different amounts of myelin so myelin is this molecule that coats axons which basically allows information to be transmitted better it's like insulation for a wire and nociceptors so pain sensing cells tend to not be myelinated or are very very thinly myelinated whereas touch cells and proprioceptors are very well myelinated so when you put your hand on a stove like your finger is touching you feel you're touching a stove but it takes a second or two for you to register that it's hot and it's because of the difference in transmission speed of those cells. Whereas if I punch you in the face, you know right away. Yeah, right but away. those are oh, different that's cells. An of, those are that's different an cells. Of pressure. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean it's a complicated system, but it's a sure. It's pretty cool. Have you ever been stung by a lionfish? Did you cry? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Introducing Stingmaster, the innovative formula developed by Terotech Incorporated. Stingmaster is the world's first ever over-the-counter topical ointment that treats the pain caused by lionfish and jellyfish stings. It's a must for any beach bag or first aid kit. Lionfish and jellyfish stings are a normal part of your beach experience. 
So keep adventuring and stop suffering with Stingmaster. Buy Stingmaster now from tarotech.com slash buy. That's P-T-E-R-O-T-E-C-H dot com slash buy. And follow Stingmaster on Instagram at sting.master. Would you like to tell us about some of the different kinds of fibers? Kind of pain, fibers. pain, pain fibers. Of course. Which are, I guess, just, just like cell extensions, right? Like the, the ends. So actually the, the phrase fiber refers to the different cell types. So if there's sure. a different fiber, it, it originates from a different cell. So there are different types of fibers. There are A fibers, uh, C fibers, B fibers. And within those, a lot of them have different classifications. So there's like A alpha fibers, A beta, A delta. And all of these fibers transmit different kinds of information. So... A fibers tend to be more focused on touch, proprioception, whereas C fibers are sort of reliably nociceptors, so pain sensing. And traditionally, there were not very many cell types that were thought to be like, I think it was maybe seven, it might be a little bit lower, a little bit higher. And now there are 12 plus cell types that have been identified and still differences that are being identified to this day between cell types or differences that are turn out to not be differences or new receptors that might be markers for different cell types. Like these things are still coming out. So there were seven kinds of cells you're saying that were kind of part of the peripheral nervous system. Yeah. So these different fibers like A alpha, A beta, A delta, C fibers, I mean, they still make up the peripheral nervous system, but we're now learning that there are actually more subtypes of them that are responsible for more specific modalities. Mm -hmm. And basically, they're just the different cell types I was describing. So like some of the A fibers will sense like touch proprioception, whereas the C fibers are like the pain sensing cells. Mm -hmm. And they'll also innervate slightly different things in your skin. So like C fibers tend to be what's called free nerve endings, which are just the nerve ending is free in the skin layer. Whereas the touch sensing cells will wrap around tiny structures that are called end organs. So there's things like Meissner corpuscles uh, or Pacinian corpuscles that get wrapped by nerve endings. And then they sense touch, pressure, vibration. Some, uh, some fibers will wrap around the bottom of a hair follicle. And then if like a hair will move, they'll sense that motion. And that's how you feel it. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, it kind of hurts if like a couple of hairs get yanked out of your scalp. By yeah, accident. those or cells are firing pretty fast. <laughs> yeah, I just want to I just want to quickly draw attention to something you just said, because you kind of glossed over it as something that you're very familiar with. But the listeners should really hear this for a second time. You said there are kind of like these little organs in the tips yeah. of our fingers. That's crazy. So I don't know if they can be classified as organs, but they're called end organs. Mm-hmm. And they're basically just tiny structures in your skin that transmit different kinds of information. And the reason that they transmit different kinds of information is because they're wrapped by different kinds of neurons that transmit that information to your spinal cord, and then that goes up to your brain. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's crazy the amount of detail and structure and like, one would assume that the structure of the end organs has evolved over time to transmit that type of information the most optimally. So it's like a very detailed system. And again, that even how cells innervate skin and what kind of end organs or cells are important for those processes is still something that's being studied. Unfortunately, not by the lab I'm in, but it's uh, right. it's really cool work. You can only cover so much. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's, so... Just to kind of tie this back to the back, all these fun little end organs you're talking about where the nerves wrap around them and we can feel really specific kinds of sensory things, 
we don't have these in our back, right? This is why we can't discern the two toothpicks. Or do I actually have these end organs in my back? You certainly have them in your back. They're just more spaced further apart. Got it. So um, they're not as close together. Just because, I guess, over time, like, you don't need to feel these specific things in your back as much as you would need them in your fingers. So we've evolved to just have more distributed end organs or just in general receptive fields. And then in our fingers, they're concentrated. I like to kind of fantasize about what it'd be like to have the same kind of uh, touch acuity in your back as you do in your fingers, because <laughs> the surface area of the fingers isn't very large. The example I always think of is is like reading Braille. Imagine if you could read an entire manuscript by just lying your back on <laughs> on the thing, sensing every single dot and going, whoa, like I just read the whole thing all at once. It's like you just lie down. It's like knowledge yeah. <laughs> absorbed. That'd, That'd be, be something. nice. That'd be sick. I'd love that. That's a lab I'd like to work in. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> wow. Cool. So, the, okay. So this was, this was setting the very important foundation of the nervous system. I think this is kind of one of those things that I want the listeners to come away with is like, we have this incredibly dynamic and complex and interesting system outside of our brain, which often gets a lot of the attention. Let's mm-hmm. be honest. I, even I've interviewed a lot of neuroscientists who are doing brain imaging and studying the brain and cognition. So this is the one where we're giving all the attention to the peripheral part of the nervous mm-hmm. system. So bring this back to your research, which is on venom and stings. Do those things come together always or can they be mutually exclusive in some contexts? Are stings always venomous? Does venom always come in stings? That's a great question. This is often like a distinction I make. Distinction? Before a talk. So venoms are things that have to be injected by the attacker, let's call it, or like the animal that contains the venom. So uh, it's not something that you would consume unless you like consume whatever their venomous gland is. Something that usually the animal uses as a type of weapon. So typically venomous animals tend to be smaller. Like some animals have weapons, let's call them like a bear has huge claws and it's big. A fish doesn't really have those things to protect itself. It's not like a shark that has big teeth. So it evolved this sort of like tiny chemical weapon that it uses to protect itself. So venoms are injected, like you said, and typically if you're being injected with a venom, it's a sting. There can also be venoms, like for example, in frogs, like they have venoms in their like salivary coating around their bodies. Mm -hmm. And in that situation, it tends to be something that gets consumed. So those animals are poisonous because you're ingesting the entire animal. Lionfish sequester their venom in glands and then sort of shoot their venom in these spines. Like they maintain gland tissue and canals in spines on their backs. And the spines are actually kind of like tiny spears that have three channels along them. And the venom is stored in these little channels so that when someone comes along and touches a lionfish's spines, it'll get punctured. The sheath that's sort of like the skin that covers the spine will get pushed down and the venom just flows into the wound, like the puncture wound by capillary action just through its spine. So there's no actual like shooting of the venom. It's more just like a flow. Mm -hmm. But what's called in uh, sort of venom, the venom field is a venoming apparatus. So whatever the animal contains its venom is and uses to inject it can change from animal to animal. So snakes have fangs, some fish have spines. There's a species of snail called a cone snail that has these tiny little, like, little tiny spears that they shoot out that's attached to their body by this long sort of string that pokes their victims and then injects them with a paralytic venom and then they eat them. 
and cone snails and then it like retract yeah it retracts it's the craziest thing like if you like if you're on youtube or something like look it up it's really cool like how a cone snail attacks and it's actually one of the most studied species uh, aquatic venomous species that has been studied uh, because they have really cool venoms but yeah it's uh, it depends on the animal but typically a sting contains a venom of some sort and venomous animals are different from poisonous animals because the poison has to be you ingesting the animal, whereas you don't have to ingest a venomous species to be stung. And God. some people ask me, like, do mosquitoes have venoms? Because, like, they sting you and it's unpleasant. So mosquitoes might have venoms in, like, the saliva, their saliva. Like, there might be sort of toxin-type factors that exist in their saliva that perpetuate the histaminergic, so the swelling and the itching reaction that you have. But that, I think that's still being studied. So do we find saliva everywhere in the animal kingdom? It's a great question. I don't know. I, I would assume so, but in different forms. So like fish, they have this like gooey thing on their skin. Like if you fish a fish and you try to pick it up, it's slimy. And yep. that slime actually contains enzymes. And it's kind of where a lot of the immune system of the fish lives. So they have like their quote unquote immune system on their skin and their saliva. But it's not quite a saliva it's sort of like a gelatinous coating yeah. i think that anything that has like a mouth that is above water must have some sort of saliva like to keep its mouth hydrated i don't know it's a good question i mean saliva is a cool it, it's like a cocktail of different enzymes even our own saliva is uh, composed of cool stuff but but not really venomous not venomous or poisonous sorry yeah not poisonous i mean not that we know of maybe it would kill some random species that we've never seen well our saliva does break down sugar yeah it has amylase in it so it can break down start to break down starches 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 yeah yeah i'm not sure exactly if we have other factors that are harmful but it just seems likely that we would have evolved something like venomous species can be venomous for so many different reasons there can be an animal that's venomous for predatory reasons because it catches its prey with its venom there are some animals that just protect themselves from predators and those venoms tend to only be painful. Uh, they don't paralyze or they don't kill because that doesn't provide an advantage to the animal, whereas a predatory venom would. So it's like, it's weird how all these different species evolved venoms differently for different reasons. That's crazy. Can we talk about uh, jellyfish just super quick? Because this was one of the things that came up in the introduction, I think, um, that, that is also an aquatic being that's known for stings. So you said you specifically focus on lionfish. Have you ever had a little foray with the jellies? I, I mean, I personally have, but not necessarily on a, on a research front. Jellyfish sting because they have these little tiny cells sort of on their tentacles called nematocysts, I believe. And they have tiny little things that pierce your skin very briefly and inject a little bit of venom that will trigger sort of a histaminergic reaction. And it's, uh, it varies based on the jellyfish. So there are some jellyfish that sting you and it's really like not a huge deal. Whereas some, ven some jellyfish sting you and you're like in the most excruciating pain you've ever felt for 30, 40 minutes. So that's Whoa. because of deferring components in their venom. And they're all contained in these tiny little cells on their tentacles. So it's a, a very cool way of storing it. 
Yeah. So you said histaminergic. That sounds a lot like antihistamines. If mm-hmm. I take reactin every day for like three <laughs> weeks, build it up in my system, can I then go get stung by something like a jellyfish and have a diminished response, pain response? Probably not. Just because reactin even is like a very weak antihistamine. So it works if you're like allergic. Like, for example, I'm allergic to cats, but I just moved yeah. in with a cat. Like one of my friends yeah. has a cat and I take uh, reactin every day. And Basically, it just helps me from these like airborne allergens and sort of helps with those like very mild things. If you took an intense antihistamine after getting stung by a jellyfish, like Benadryl or something, uh, that might help with your swelling. So the histaminergic reaction I'm talking about is sort of like, it's the same thing as when you get stung by a mosquito or something and it's itchy. Mm -hmm. There are these receptors in your skin on nerve endings that transmit itch information really, but uh, that once they receive these histaminergic triggers, they'll transmit information to your brain being like, I'm itchy, like tell her to itch her hand. And then there'll be other local reactions that are inflammatory. So there'll be the release of different molecules that trigger redness swelling and sort of the visual thing that you see when you're stuck by a mosquito and the more you itch the more you'll release histaminergic factors and the more your brain will be telling you to itch your hand because it's itchy and then the more inflammatory things will get released and the more you'll get swollen so we should not be scratching our itches is what you're telling me don't scratch your itch that's uh that's definitely the the thing to to do but you heard it here first. <laughs> I don't know if the antihistamines can be preventative for stings. I think it has to be after, but I'm not sure. Okay. So, I, was, I was just curious. Once yeah. you got to drop that, that terminology, I figured I'd take the etymology and <laughs> run with it for a little bit. Cool. Oh, God. I, I could just I could sit here and ask just a million more questions, but I really do want to get to talking a little bit about your startup because I think that's super cool and a really unique thing that you're doing as a graduate student. So let's maybe kind of start to slowly wind down the science aspect of this episode and talk a bit more about how you've kind of translated research here into industry. This is, this mm-hmm. is super cool. So when I was uh, so when I joined the lab that I was in, I started working on this lionfish project and things started going very well. And I realized I really loved science and that I was meant to be a scientist. So I decided to do my PhD and keep working on that project. So that's when I started doing sort of more research on lionfish venom. And we actually identified what the target of the pain causing toxin in lionfish venom is on the nociceptors. So uh, something I didn't mention before is that venoms are like cocktails of molecules. They have thousands of molecules and those molecules are called toxins. And there's basically like a, a few or one toxin that's responsible for causing pain. But specifically the toxin that causes pain acts on this receptor we identified. And in my project, like I found all these basically pharmaceutical drugs that we can use for research use, but like obviously we can't give to people because they're either not approved for human use or not approved for, you know, non-cellular use because a lot of this was done in isolated cells. And we actually found a class of molecules that occurs naturally in some plant extracts that acts on the same receptor that lionfish venom targets to block that receptor. So to block the activation of the pain sensing neurons by the venom. So if we use these blockers, like you can get stung by a lionfish, you might have some pain, you might have a little bit of inflammation, but the majority of the pain signal is being blocked by this molecule. 
So after we saw that in mice and stuff and in cells, we were blocking the activation of isolated pain-sensing nerve cells in a dish, but also blocking the licking behavior that mice were showing, we figured like we should try to make this something, you know, at the very least like patent this. And because, you know, we have to use lionfish to extract venom, we had connections with some people in Florida who hunt lionfish to help control the population. And then a few years later, we were like, oh, we could actually potentially do this. That's amazing. So we filed a provisional patent, which is basically a patent that sort of is like faster to get and protects you while you prepare the full patent application. Mm -hmm. And uh, we started this company to try to formulate a topical cream. So just an ointment you put on your skin that you could use after being stung by lionfish to help control the pain. And pretty quickly, we were able to hammer down a formula that includes not only that blocker I mentioned, but also things that help break down the toxins. So if we break these apart, we can help control the activation by pain-sensing nerve cells. And there's also some like anti-inflammatory molecules in there also to help with the inflammation. And it was like this great ride. We very early on were part of this startup incubator in Montreal that's actually housed at Concordia called District 3. And they were absolutely incredible. We went through this program called the Accelerator Program, which is basically takes young startups like pre before we were incorporated and most people weren't incorporated. And it makes you interview 100 potential customers, which is very daunting, over 10 weeks. I've never done anything like this in my life. I'm like a science kid. I don't love talking to people. I don't know. But it was a great learning experience. We talked to so many people who'd been stung by lionfish and yeah, we made this this cream. We launched in November, and so far, you know, so good. It sold. It started selling like pretty well in the beginning, so, and we. That, uh, this happened so fast. Like this, I feel like it's unheard. I feel of. like I blinked. Well, yeah, it, it almost sounds like it was an accident. Like you just slipped and whoa, and then it just all of a sudden, a like, manufacturer came out of nowhere, and then a patent came out of nowhere. Obviously, there's a ton of effort that went into all of this, but. I mean, if you asked me five years ago if I would be a PhD student and that I would have a startup, I literally would have laughed in your face. Like I had no interest in either of those things. And just I started doing research. I remembered why I even wanted to go to stage up in science because I love science. And then I realized what it meant to be a scientist and what your day could be like, that you could just do experiments and just get answers to questions that like no one has ever answered before. And it's just the most fun to me. And then this opportunity came about and like we'd done basically all the R&D already. So it was just the the year of actually taking something from the lab to the market. And it was just another thing where I was like, why not? Like, I, I don't have kids. Like, I might as well, you know, like do this while I can. Check is your baby. It definitely is. I do some work with stem cells. So I joke that the few stem cell lines I've made are my babies because they're my literal children in a way. Yeah. But Tarotech is definitely my baby. Oh, man, this is really great. Well, congratulations, honestly, really good for you for, for getting that off the ground, too. I, I mean, I've I spoken to many masters and PhD students at this point and been one myself. It's a lot of work. So to be creating something like this at the same time is really quite magical. I feel very lucky that I find it fun and that I found something that I really enjoy. And I hope I keep enjoying it. Otherwise, I'll make a pivot. I don't know. We'll see. Me too. I hope you keep enjoying it. You never know. Five years ago, you didn't know you'd be loving what you're doing and doing what you're doing. And here you are. So maybe five years from now, you're going to be hating your life. I hope not. (laughs) Maybe I'll be like a pilot, like something totally random. Who knows? I'd be happy to have you back on the podcast (laughs) if and when that happens. Thank you. Final question. Yeah. You're standing at the foot of a giant auditorium. It's a thousand seat auditorium and it's packed to the brim. What do you tell the audience? 
Great question. I would say take calculated risks and don't be afraid of failure because I think there are so many things that I've done where I was like, 100%, I'm going to fail at this. Maybe it didn't go how I thought, but whatever that failure was, wasn't a flat out failure. And I learned from whatever mistake happened. I learned from whatever bad deal or bad experiment I did. And it turned out to help me do something in the future much better. So I think take calculated risks is a a good piece of advice. Like don't jump off of things, but (laughs) calculate what the worst case scenario could be. And if it's not that bad, then, you know, why not try? Awesome. That's a great, that's a great point to end on. I'd like to think that I try and live my life in a, in a calculated way, maybe less risky than you, but definitely calculated. (laughs) So that's, that definitely applies to me and hopefully more universally to the listeners. So, Hey, listeners, if you're listening, thank you. And I hope that you heed these words. Wow. Okay. Amazing. This was, this was a really eye-opening discussion today. I really enjoyed chatting with you, Stephanie. Thank you so much again for being on the show. Thank you so much for having this. I've always wanted to be on a podcast. This is so fun. I really, I really enjoyed this experience. Great questions. Great discussion. I, I appreciated this. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.